So our program tonight is with Tom Nauman, and it's been many, many years since we saw him. I think the last time we were still at the Field Museum. Yeah, uh, yes. Oh, yeah. That really dates things. Like, a long time ago. Including me. Yeah, and myself. And myself. Um, and at that time, when we, he, was, he had just come up with the concept of the, uh, what, the Illinois State Morale Championship, which was what, in Magnolia? Magnolia. Right, and boy, was that a great event because they we put us they put us on a uh, tennis court in the middle of town, and you had the volunteer firemen that were cooking butterfly pork chops, and I'll never forget those guys because they were taking liquid you know fire starter. There's a lit fire and they're pouring more on. You know the backs up it's that thing. It's not a pretty picture. I, and I have a picture of that because I couldn't believe it. But anyway, it was a really great small town event that I really enjoyed. And then I went to Henry, and then I've been everywhere else. And he's going to talk about morales and he's going to talk about the history of this glamorous event. Right, Tom? I hope so. <laughs> okay, great. Do kind of a campfire talk here. Raise your hand if you want to interrupt anytime. I won't get lost. Um, so if you've got questions, it's better to bring them up at the time before we both forget. <laughs> We're in Magnolia, which is about three hours south of here, at least the way I meandered up here yesterday. <laughs> if you use me as a mushroom expert, that's far from the truth. There's probably many people here that know a lot more about mushrooms than I do. I consider myself a student of mycology. I do expos at the Deer and Turkey Classics in seven different states. And so this whole presentation is for neophytes, for people who want to learn more. Maybe you'll learn something, maybe you won't, um, but it's still interesting. Anybody here of Irish descent? Yes. Yeah, you're probably here because of a fungus, and you probably knew that already. <laughs> the Salem Witch Trials, uh, sources for penicillin, the plagues of Egypt, um, all related to fung fungi. And I like to show this picture because those two mushrooms on the right, one of them is what we eat on pizza, and the other one is deadly, and I'm sure you know what they are. Stan Tequila from Minnesota, he came up with the what's called the Safe Six. And he's just updated his book and calling it the Safe Seven. He's added chanterelles to the mix. It, it, that's my wife on the far right. Interesting story there. The, the tree that that sulfur shelf grew on is on a state highway in the middle of Henry, Illinois. And the curb is sloped about like this. So I used to take the ladder and kind of balance it like this and climb up about 30 feet. And then with age, you get a little bit of wisdom. Now I take a pole saw and she catches it in a laundry basket. So how high up does it grow? Uh, that was about 30 feet. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm assuming you were all familiar with all of those mushrooms. Yeah, you can say whatever your shtick is, it's yeah. fine. Okay. There are about 10 million mushroom hunters in North America. And this is my grandson, he's learning very rapidly. Of course we have NAMA and the MSA. And, and again, all of these websites are on that handout that I passed out. And if you don't have enough, maybe we can get more copies made later. Why do we do it? Well, for me, it's the flavor and the thrill of the hunt. Um, you all know Taylor Lockwood, I, I hope. He's been here several times. He does it for the beauty of the mushrooms. 
Um, mushrooms have medicinal properties. Some have some have hallucinogenic properties, and some are a cash crop. And this was in the auction at Wyoming, Illinois, in 2012. It was a terrible year, and the person really wanted that first bag of mushrooms, and he paid $160 for a half pound. <laughs> the morel season, three to six weeks period in the spring. We had a bumper crop this year. All the way from Alabama and Georgia, it's still going in central Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, and further north. We always say mid-April to mid-May, or we say tax day to mid-May around the Peoria area. Um, southern states, February. Southern California, January. Alaska, you can hunt for four or five months, and you can hunt 24-7. Because <laughs> uh, it's the land of the midnight sun. And I think in 2001, no, it was 1991, the town of Toke, Alaska, they had a forest burn the year before, and of course that brings out the morels. People were walking off their jobs or staying out all night hunting mushrooms because they could make more finding morels than they could on the job. And those that stayed out all night fell asleep on the job. <laughs> Okay, I always look at uh, this website here, it's the Illinois Farm Bureau, for the ground temperature. They, they list it every morning at 7 a.m. what the ground temperature is, and when it gets to 55, we know that's when the mushrooms are starting. But they're only going to be about this big, so you're going to step on more than you find. My grandpa always told me to look for oak leaves to be the size of squirrel's ears, but he never taught me how to catch the squirrel to measure it. <laughs> Um, I look for the first dandelions blooming in the yard and the first anthills. That's the sign the season is just beginning. Um, when I see lilacs bloom, that's typically mid-season. And it's going to end when it runs its natural course or you get the daytime high temperatures of 85 degrees for three days in a row. And the season does progress north at the rate of 100 miles a week. The uh, sightings page that we started in 1998 on our website, it's become too much to handle, so it's a self-posting page on Facebook now. And we still have all the records on the original website from 1998 through last year. Just some comparisons. In 2002, April 15 through the 18th, we had 90 degree days. Four days, hot and dry, it was a tough year. The following year, 2003, yeah, we didn't, hit, we didn't hit the 90 degree mark until July 4th, so it was a bumper crop. Stayed cool and moist. More recently, the year that the guy paid the $160 for a half pound was 2012's. We found our, we normally start looking for morels around April 11. We found the first on March 23rd that year and it lasted about three days. The following year, we didn't find our first morel until May 1, so we skipped the entire month of April. So you can't say it's gonna start April 15 of every year. You've gotta watch ground temperature and other indications. Any questions so far? Yes? Where on the ground do you measure the temperature? Four inches deep. Bare soil? Pardon? Bare soil? Uh, that's a good question. It also matters whether you're on the north-facing slope or the south-facing slope. So I think the, what the Farm Bureau gives you is bare soil. 
Because yeah, it's they for farmers. Put a couple on it, but I usually go by bare soil. Yeah. That's what I've been told. Yep. Okay, this is from Tom Volk, and it just shows the uh, the entire organism. We start out with the with the morel, you know, which came first, the spore or the morel. But the morel sends out the spores. They float away, hopefully land somewhere conducive to their growth. They form a symbiotic relationship with their host. They're a parasite. They 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 don't make their own food. Um, in fact, scientists are telling us now that. Fungi are more closely related to humans than they are animals than they are plants, because human humans and fungi do not make their own food, whereas plants do through chlorophyll and sunlight. So we're actually closer related to morels or, or mushrooms are more closely related to us than they are plants. This circle of life for the for the morel and the mycelium that can go on for 30 40 100 years it's living off that host it's breaking down nutrients for a host to absorb and it's feeding off the host it's a symbiotic relationship mutually beneficial and in that 30 40 10 20 how many years it may never produce a morel that's not its purpose it doesn't need to it's there to exist what happens is Dutch elm disease starts, uh, limb breaks off, wind blows a tree over. Um, something happens that the mycelium senses somehow it's losing its food source. And so for survival, it sends up the fruit body, which is the morel. Hopefully conditions are right, it sends out spores, they float away and land somewhere conducive to their growth to start the cycle all over again. Dead elms, ash trees, they're all dying and not producing a lot of morels. Living cottonwood trees, old apple orchards, the trees are still alive. Tulip poplars still living. Why are they living and why is the elm dead? One theory says that the spores went out, landed on the ground, formed a relationship with the cottonwood or the apple trees and figured out, well, this is okay, but not that good. We're gonna send out fruit for survival of the species to go a little bit further. So is the morale a response to stress? Yes, nutritional stress. Ah, uh, okay. Can you find them uh, where you did like the year before? Yeah. Do they come up the same place? They're probably in decreasing quantities, and again, it depends on the weather. I have literally found a morale in the middle of a corn stubble field 200 feet from any tree. So why it was there, how it got there, I have no idea. Squirrels. Squirrels, yeah, they do a lot of animals. Yes, sir. I've got a question, a question. If you have a small area of, say, elm trees, yeah. and over a period of five years, they all die out, and you come back every year or whatever and collect your morels, meet some that's going out, after the point at which there are no more morels sprouting, does that mycelium keep on growing for years and years? I don't think so. I don't know for That's sure. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, my thought what, is no. What are the chances? Because I have found sometimes a morale in areas with elm trees and also black cherry. Oh yeah, black cherry. And <laughs> what are the chances that mycelium will find a new host 
that in this area we're losing all our elm trees, we've lost practically all of our ash trees for now. Will it will the mycelium migrate like you say to cottonwood? I've never found a world over cottonwood in this area. I d I don't think I think the mycelium actually is, is diminished. It's di it it's will dead. die out. Yeah, and that's my own thought. No okay, no scientific proof to it whatsoever. That's what I thought, but and I'm no expert to I, I laughed at the black cherry because at our contest, or not the contest, our class in Ottawa this year, that's where we found the most morels was on one big black cherry tree. Really? So question, is yes. there a way to shock the environment that they grow in to produce morels? Well, one farmer friend I know, he girdled about 30 elm trees about 10 years ago, and he had a bumper crop for five years, but then they're all gone, including the trees. They were good for firewood at that point. <laughs> yes, Pat? There was a case in uh, Minnesota back when I was in that club where uh, a woman lived on a boulevard, and probably the case here where you had a boulevard down talking down the street, and the city came in to trim the roots under the sidewalk, and the next year there were morels all up and down oh, yeah. <laughs> So you can kill, you can cut off some roots <laughs> instead of killing Is there any evidence for fire morels in the east? I know in the west they fall apart. Um, the closest I've heard to us is in the upper peninsula of Michigan about three or four years ago. Mm -hmm. they, uh, they, they appeared there after a bird. And I, that's on my bucket list to actually go hunt one of the birds, but it hasn't happened yet. These are a couple of our products. The, this is seven pounds of morels, and you can see they're pushing out, they're grading against the side, it's damaging the mushrooms. This is 22 pounds of plastic morels, and you can see the force is down. They're not grading as much. The bottom is solid, so they don't scrape and grate. And that's, that's my own invention. There's about five or six copycats out in the market now. But mostly, we use a basket or a mesh bag just so the mushrooms can breathe. Fours do release if they're ready to be released. I would venture to say that 60 to 70% of the morels we pick aren't ready to spore, and they're not gonna spore because we've picked them. If the pit, and, and I'll explain that a little bit later here, but this is a friend of mine's dashboard. He's a commercial picker, and when he only finds one or two or three or four, he throws them up on the dash. Okay, in the sunlight, and you can see when spores went out all over his dash. Okay, when did the spores come out? Not here, not here, not here. Not quite there. That's when the spores come out, is when those pits get wide open, the ridges get separated, they're thinned out. That's when the morels come out. These are the best eating, and these are probably what we picked the most of. They're, they're not going to go to spore. Never will, because... We've already eaten them. <laughs> and everything I've said can be argued, except this. These, this is cast in stone. This is cast in stone. There are three rules to identify a true edible morel, and that is it has pits and ridges as opposed to wrinkles and folds. It is completely hollow, and even that, I saw a picture of one that was chambered inside, and it was a true morel from the Pacific Northwest this year. And the cap and stem connect at the base of the cap with the, the exception of the, of the half-free morel. And these are not the three species, this is all one. And I'm hearing now that there's like 28 different species of morels in the United States. And you can call them Esculenta or Americana 
or Bill or Bob or Jack, they're still going to taste good. So, <laughs> This is the black morels. It's kind of rare for us in central Illinois and, and probably I had a good spot over near Galesburg, Illinois that produced a lot of black morels, but uh, uh, not in the quantities that you'd find up in northern Michigan. Where in northern Michigan? <laughs> Charlevoix County, uh, Chandler Charlevoix. Hill. Charlevoix. Yeah, Charlevoix. Chandler Hill. You know when you get there because you see all the license plates from Indiana and Ohio. <laughs> the Manistee National Forest is a good, a good area too. And not quite as crowded. Okay, non-morels, and that's what I call them. They're, they're mostly gyromitras. And there are, there are new studies out within the past year that says this one is edible. That one's not, that one's not, that one's not. And that one may be, but it is a toadstool. I'm not going to eat them, although I have in the past. I was actually served uh, some, some uh, uh, gyromitra esculenta at a restaurant. And uh, of course, before we consumed the soup, we talked to the chef, and he had cooked them two or three times, boiled them two or three times. And we just took a taste. We didn't, we didn't pick out too much. But it was, it was a morel soup, quote unquote. And we don't find a lot of these in Illinois, Indiana, Northern Michigan, yes, Pacific Northwest, yes. This is, this is the look-alike to the half-free morel. It's a verpa. It has wrinkles and folds rather than pits and ridges. It's got a cottony fiber in the stem, and the stem goes all the way to the top of the cap. And every fall, every, it never fails, I get a phone call. We've got morels in the yard. I said, no, you don't. And I, and I have to explain that what happened is it came up like this, the veil fell away, and it's got a gooey, slimy, smelly, it smells like um, rotting meat, and it attracts flies and carrion beetles, and they carry that ink away. So instead of bees and pollen, it's other insects and spores. That's how, that's how the spore gets spread. After a rain, that goo washes away, and it does look very similar to a morel in the cap anyway. But the stem goes all the way to the top. Any questions so far? No? Okay, where are we going to find them at? Number one is the dead elm tree. Then we have sycamores, tulip poplars. Maple trees are a fairly new phenomenon, and I don't know if that's a reaction to the ash trees dying or not. In, in Michigan, when the elms died out, that's when the morels started congregating around the ash trees and the tulip poplars. And I'm wondering now, since the ash trees are dying, that they're finding their way to maple trees. Upper Michigan or the other side? Pardon? UP or the other side of Michigan? Uh, both. Yeah. Yes, sir. Since you indicated that the uh, morels uh, are a response to stress, what about trees that have had a lightning strike? Oh yeah, yeah. For, for every limb that gets hit by lightning, there's a corresponding root underground. And, and it's, gonna, it's gonna die because its branch is gone. So then we could stick a couple electrodes in the ground and... <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> Why is that so funny? 
So we put up all electrodes in the ground and we zap the ground. And let me know how it works. With uh, <laughs> a lot of voltage. And yeah. Yeah. Yes. Are these apple orchards or any orchards? Uh, mostly apple, but I've heard of them in pear and peach orchards too. But it's no longer a, produ a productive orchard. Right. It's, it's been abandoned and just let go to seed, so to speak. Ground trauma, that would be the forest fire, a flood. Um, <laughs> what was that? Voltage. Voltage. <laughs> um, when Mount St. Helens erupted, they literally hauled morels out the following spring by the semi-loads because they came up through the ashes. The only trouble is the morels grew so fast they encapsulated the ash and you couldn't eat them. They were crunchy, too crunchy. Where they uh, log uh, trees in the Pacific Northwest, they create their own roads through the woods and they crush the ground because they're so heavy. The following spring, you can walk that trail and find morels 10 feet on either side and nothing further out. A little bit about tree identification here. I recognize elms by the, by the V shape or the vase shape. Cottonwoods I recognize by the thickness of the bark. Ash I recognize by that pointed oval pattern in the bark. And the tulip copper, you see between the ridges on that bark, there's a, a cream white coloring. That's, that's, that's how I recognize tulip poppers. We basically talked about this already. But I look for the funnel or the vase shape. Most of the bark is still on the tree. There's no leaf buds because it's dead. If I see leaf buds, it's either still living or nearly dead, but it's not producing morels yet. Smaller branches up at the top are bare or missing. The bark is starting to slip away, and there might be white speckles underneath on the wood. The exposed wood is reddish brown. Why is that? That's because the bark has just fallen off. If it fell off three or four years ago, the wood is weathered and it's turned gray, almost white, with rain, sun, and wind. And this doesn't matter to me. I know what elm seeds look like, I know what the leaves look like, but those are living trees. I want one that's not living anymore. <laughs> I took these pictures, this one in the far right, in the summer, because it's easier to see that shape of the tree. These trees are way beyond producing morels. This one I took in the spring, but I knew it was a, an elm tree because there was a no trespassing sign right about there. <laughs> but but I, I put the sign there, so it was mine. <laughs> Here you can see some of the bark slipping off. That's, that's very indicative of, of a good elm tree. For morels. For, for morels, yes, yeah. It, it, it's not easy to see, but these are elms and some of the bark is falling off here in the upper branches, so it's not right at the trunk. You need to be looking up like this to see where that bark may be falling away. All right, so we know we're looking for a dead elm. And where are we gonna look? We talked about this on the soil temperature too. The top of the south facing slopes, the south edge of the woods, because that's where the sun warms the ground first, soil temperature. So the soil gets warm, the morel's gonna come out there first. We get further into the season, we're gonna be looking at the bottom of those south facing slopes, the top of the north facing slopes, further into the woods. Again, the sun is finally warming that ground up. And late season, 
bottom of the north facing slope, north edge of the woods, lowlands, gullies where the sun never shines, uh, that would be late season. And one exception I point out here is 79. We had lots of rain, cool days, warm nights, mushrooms were everywhere all at once. People were filling bathtubs. And uh, what one guy called me, he's from Peoria, and he says, I've got 300 pounds of morels. Do you want to buy them? I said, no, I've got 100 myself. <laughs> he says, well, wh where, where can I sell them? I said, I don't know. <laughs> well, what do I do with them? I said, buy a dehydrator or do something. Spread them out in the picnic tables. The kids trampoline, put tarps out, get them dried. They'll last. Any questions? When you say lay them out and let them dry, how long is a dried morel? How many years does it how long does it last? Dry morale. As long as you keep them dry, it can last 100 years. Okay, so. I've got some that are 30 jar. years. I've got some that are 30 years on my kitchen stove in a jar. I, I wouldn't be afraid to eat them at all. Okay. Is there another question? What is the late season that you mentioned? Late season is, how do I describe it? Um, it's typically anywhere from three to six weeks after the morels start. The, the sun starts getting warm. Um, you're, getting, you're getting warm down near lowlands, the soil's warming up, and that's when you find giant morels. We, we walk our creek bed, we've got cottonwoods lining the creek bed, and it's just the right height. We can walk in the water, and we're right at ground level, and we can just see them just everywhere. Where's this at? <laughs> is on the first slide, you missed it, sorry. <laughs> what other plant indicators could be like things that are flowering at that time? Um, typically... It'll trigger, those plants will trigger on degree days along with the degree days. May apples are opened up. When they, when they first come out of the ground, they're like spikes and then the leaves open up. That would be an indication that you're into morel season. So just when they're, the double leaf is coming out, they're kind of going yeah. yeah, or just when it's starting to open up. Sure. Joe, Joe McFarland kept records. Oh, yeah. You know, where he was located, what was blooming, you know, what was around him every time. So over time, you, you learn that just yeah. by observation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I probably got that all right here, but I don't know how to tell it. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, do they grow morels? Yes, they do. This is in Scottville, Michigan. Uh, it was figured out in, two, or in 1985. And may, maybe you know this, but I'll, I'll tell it anyway. A guy by the name of Ron Auer, O-W-E-R, was in uh, San Francisco area. And he figured out, anybody at that time with a little bit of knowledge could, could get the mycelium to form but they couldn't make it to produce morels. Well, he figured out the starvation part. He starved the, the nutrients and out came the morels. He wrote a paper on it. No one believed him, but Neogen Corporation in Lansing uh, paid his way to come back and prove it, which he did. Patent was issued in April of 86. Sold it to Domino's Pizza and they built a farm in Mason, Michigan. They were growing 500 pounds a week year round. Now, Domino's Pizza didn't, didn't buy that process to put on pizzas. Tom Monahan owned Domino's Pizza. He bought the Detroit Tigers, Detroit Lions. He bought anything that he thought would make money. And it did for a while. It wasn't making enough money. The accountant said, we're going to double production. And the scientist said, 
where are we going to put the new building? And the accountant says, no, that's not cost, cost wise, so we're going to do it in this building. And they said, anyway, all but one scientist left, and the production dropped from 500 pounds a week to five pounds. <laughs> and that was, that was about five weeks later, so we know what the, the growth cycle was, but it involved freezing a couple of times. The problem was, Mr. Auer was from San Francisco, and the morel that he was able to clone was the landscape morel. And it doesn't have the same flavor as what you and I are used to here in the Midwest. And the cost of production was $100 a pound. So selling something that doesn't taste right for 120, 150, whatever the profit margin was, didn't work out. So that's when the accountant said, dump this puppy. We're, uh, we're gonna do something else. Terry Farms bought it. They built a farm in Auburn, Alabama. It burnt to the ground before anything happened. They rebuilt it. And the Morel Project, Terry Farms was big. They had 30 mushroom farms nationwide. The Morel Project bankrupt the company. Um, and again, because it didn't have the flavor and it was too costly. The one scientist that was with both of those is now with Diversified Natural Products in Scottville, Michigan. That's where the pictures are from. That's Dr. Gary Mills. He got a grant from the state of Michigan to buy an old bean factory. He had 300 employees, and after about eight months, he was down to one employee that was himself. He was selling to Myers, but again, you sell one batch, there's no flavor, nobody's going to buy it again. It was bought out by, I think, uh, a mushroom farm out of Groton, Gourmet Mushrooms, and they are growing the maitakis, the hen of the woods, at the same facility. So they're still growing morels, but again, it's not profitable. Yes? Have you seen that YouTube video, the uh, largest morel farm in the world in China? Yeah, I have. It goes for, it goes for miles. Yeah, yeah. I don't know which... It, it, actually, I've seen a video where they're scooping with snow shovels and throwing them on a pile as high as this screen. Yeah. <laughs> and I've talked to people who have eaten them, and they said no flavor. Wow. Oh. And then I talked to people that sell them, they said, oh yeah, there's all kinds of flavor. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, home cultivation, the spore kits. The only one I know of that actually worked for a friend of mine was from uh, Paul Stamets' company out in the Pacific Northwest, fungi.com. Um, I've heard a lot of reports of people dumping scraps out and using a mesh bag, that helps. Uh, Morelfarms.com, that was the original hippie commune in Tennessee. And one of the things they produced was a spore kit for morels. The town of Havana, Illinois, sold it through their uh, Farm Bureau. They had to refund $10,000 worth, uh, uh, worth of spore kits because none of them worked. Wow. The, uh, the process that was used is at that website there on Scientific Frontiers. Okay, what are we going to do after we find them? Well, that guy got lucky. The Nauman family sorts into three categories. We got buggy, mature, and fresh, okay? And the buggy ones, we're going to slice a ring, soak them in salt water for 15 minutes, rinse several times. We're gonna eat those within 48 hours because once they've hit water, they're gonna spoil. You, you never see mushrooms in the store uh, that have been washed or soaked, uh, unless they're in a can. They're going to spoil real quick once they've hit water, especially salt water. If they're mature but not buggy, you don't need all the salt. 
And again, we cut away any bad spots. We don't wash them until we're ready to eat them. Okay, we're gonna put them in the colander in a fridge, cover with damp paper towel, um, not soaking wet, but just, just sprinkle some water on the paper towel. Those can last even longer than four days. In fact, they'll start to dry out. It depends again how fresh they were when you, when you put them in the fridge. Same thing with the freshest and the cleanest, identical, except you can, they'll dry out, they'll dehydrate in the fridge, you can keep them forever, and they're the best for dehydrating. And the number one rule, I've had a thousand people say, well, I tried dehydrating and it didn't work. Did you wash them first? Well, yeah. No, you don't. <laughs> don't wash them. Just take them right out of the woods, cut them, don't cut them, it doesn't matter. Get them in a dehydrator, set them outside on something not metallic, otherwise they'll rust. Uh, spring, string them up uh, like uh, popcorn on the Christmas tree, but not in the attic or basement because the morels absorb their environment and if you've got a musty attic or a, or a real damp, moldy basement, you're gonna, you're gonna recognize that taste. Larry Lonick used to buy a lot of morels from South America and sell them. Of course, he had to sample everything that came in just to make sure, that's a tough job, you know? <laughs> But he got some that really, really didn't taste good. So he got a hold of his supplier and he said, what's wrong with these morels? Well, he thought they were okay. No, they don't taste right. Well, how'd you dehydrate them? Well, we put them over the dung fire like we always do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's Larry the Tree Lonic, right? Yeah, yeah. I've not heard of a long time. He passed away in 2003. That right. mushroom stick back there is one I made for him, the, the big one, because he was six foot seven. Yeah, he was tall. Yeah. He, uh, he was the P.T. Barnum of, of Moreldom. <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. He, he, maybe you need to tell everybody else. Yeah, he, he, he would stretch the truth if it would benefit him, and I still loved him dearly. He was at my house seven days before he died. It was an accident, wasn't it? He was at the Minnesota Sports Show and won a four-wheeler. Just signed up, won a four-wheeler. So he stayed in my house on his way to Louisiana, Missouri, where they hunted on mules every spring. And he had his four-wheeler, the other guys were on the mules. Well, one of the front wheels got tangled in a vine and rolled over. Well, he was big enough, he just stepped off and let it roll. And then he went, it was upside down, he uprighted it himself, rode it back to the farm, no damage and had a morel meal and complained of shoulder pain. And his friends thought, well, maybe you fractured your shoulder. He said, no, I, I didn't get in a wreck, I stepped off. Well, they took him to the hospital. The hospital gave him a clean bill of health and as he's checking out, he had a massive coronary and died. Wow. Yeah, clean I bill of health. about the four-wheeling, I, I assumed yeah. it was an accident. Clean bill of health. Wow. Okay, we just attended the uh, the 58th annual national championship in Boyne City, Michigan. They have the national contest. They have a guided hunt the day before on Friday. But on Saturday at noon, they have the Taste of Boyne and they have about 12 different restaurants furnished chefs and they all prepare samples of morel dishes. And I think you pay $10 to get in, then you buy tickets for a dollar each and this restaurant may be three tickets, that one may be four, but you're gonna get the taste of morels that day. Uh, Mansfield, Indiana, they have the morel auction. 
Irvine, Kentucky, I've not been to, but one of my reps does. Ottawa, Illinois, we'll talk about that later. Uh, Osseo, Michigan, second Saturday of May. Muscaday, Wisconsin, and you can see the season is progressing north. These people choose their day according to when they, they know or the morels should be there. And we've missed it once, but uh, so that you can see the season is moving north. Nobody shows anybody where the mushroom spots are, right? Well, I'm, I'm the exception because there are 17 school buses on that road and they have 697 mushroom hunters. <laughs> and they're given two hours to go hunt morels and whoever comes back with the most is the Illinois State Champion. It, uh, and we'll get into that further, but these are more pictures from it. This is Morel University, happens at the same time where we actually try and teach people. And then we divide the mushrooms evenly among all competitors. That's the real problem. <laughs> this is part of, part of the crowd afterwards. It, it, it amazes me. Uh, of course, I stay near the clubhouse. This is at a golf course. After 20 minutes, somebody comes up and says, we may as well be in the Sahara Desert. There's no morels here. I'll say, well, you know, you're, you're, on, you're on the putting green here. There's not going to be any morels here unless you're real lucky. And I said, why don't you wait a while and see what comes in? Well, when they start with 10 minutes, 5 minutes to go, they're running in with sacks of morels, 55 in, in number or 88 in number. I never saw that guy again. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is Tom Bulk. Standing behind him is Nick Money. And that's Daryl Cox standing behind the cameraman. And uh, at least a former member of our organization and one of your people, one of the people who won the championship Lisa? a few times. Uh, talking about Daryl. Daryl, yeah, he won it two times in a row. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, I, had, I had a guy who, uh, who was 68 come up to me and he says, you know, you ought to give us older guys a chance, you know? Give us a 10 minute head start. <laughs> and I said, Daryl was 68 and 69 when he won the contest, so no, I'm not giving you guys any advantage. <laughs> I think that's Michael Quo, not... Yeah, yeah, oh, okay. is that what I, I thought I said that. Michael Quo and then Nick Money behind him and then Daryl. And that's it as far as the prepared presentation. picture of a morel time-lapse photographer. You've probably seen it on YouTube anyway, so I'll just start, start talking about the company. Yes? Where's the, uh, as far as picking morels or other mushrooms, national parks, national forests, can you go in and pick them? I mean, I know like the County Forest Preserve, I don't think they're allowed yeah. to except for scientific purposes, but... Illinois State Parks allow mushroom gathering of mushrooms, nuts, and berries, except you have to, and if they allow turkey hunting, the turkey hunters have rights until one, one in the afternoon. They have to depart and the mushroom hunters can go in after one. So the trick is to buy a turkey hunting license. <laughs> um, the Shawnee National Forest, it's completely legal. 
the Morgan Monroe State Park, Southern Indiana, Brown County State Park, uh, Yellowwood, they're, they're all okay. But if you're concerned, um, check with the site manager. I was just wondering, is there a policy as far as national parks? No, okay. no. I'm curious, what do you think the reasoning is behind that? Why, why would they have that off? It's ignorance. Okay. Yeah, um, you're not supposed to take even a, a dead twig out right. of a forest preserve. Take nothing unless you leave nothing behind. Yeah, take only pictures, leave only footprints. Okay. Huh? Okay. If that doesn't show, Patrick, it's okay. Any other questions so far? Here. <laughs> Thank you. No, Illinois, so far, in fact, uh, are you, have you got an answer for that? No, I had a question. Sorry. Oh, well, let me get this first. In 2004, Illinois allowed that they pass a law that you can hunt, gather mushrooms, nuts, and berries. Prior to that, it was illegal. And they thought at the time about instituting a license for mushroom hunters. It's unenforceable. They can't enforce it. Um, Montana tried, and they, they, they get family groups in. One person will buy a license, and so when the inspectors come by, oh, you've got 60 pounds of mushrooms. Uh, you all got license? No, he picked them all. He's got the license. You know, So it's, it's not enforceable. Just like, um, did you know that you cannot sell a wild harvested mushroom in Illinois? It's illegal. So if you see them in the store or restaurant, it's illegal. But we have an auction in Ottawa where we sell morel. Actually, it's a farmer's market now with morels only. The, the exception to the rule is, is if you get permission from the county health department. So, well, we wanted to sell morels, so we went and I showed them my credentials and I'm certified to inspect morels for sale in Indiana, Missouri, and Iowa. They said, well, it's not a problem because we only, we only inspect if there's a two-day event. Yours is a one-day event. So it's okay to sell poisonous mushrooms on a one-day event, but not two. <laughs> that, that's the state we live in. <laughs> Anything else? Yes. Um, when you were talking about preparing morels, it was a phrase, slice or green. What does ring mean in terms of calamari? Instead of slicing them this way, cut them in rings. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yes. Thanks. Well, what's the cycle? You go to a spot that you know has morale, you don't see them, and then they pop up. How long are you talking before they, you know, and well, until they're completely gone? Let me hit play here. This was filmed, picture taken every hour for 16 days. And there's another one that went 21 days. And if you see the white area in the background, that's a, that's a five-gallon bucket. A friend of mine dug where he found little sprouts coming, put them in the bucket. Now, why, oh, okay, gotcha. why is there not, where's nighttime at? You know, we're seeing this mushroom grow, but I don't see any nighttime there. He put them under his house in a crawl space with a floodlight on them. He spritzed them every day. Now, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to the next one too. Anyway, this is 16 days, and you'll see it actually fall over, I think. <laughs> Did he cut a piece out of the soil? Yeah, he, he, he dug enough to put in a five gallon bucket. He, he was good. 
Why would you? Why, what's that? What's beneficial to doing that? To, to get the picture, to show oh, that. It's just for the yeah. Hmm. And what do they look like when they're first coming up? Uh, just little white things. In fact, we used to give a, a trophy for the smallest morel found at our contest. <laughs> and one year, we had to send somebody to the house to get a magnifying glass so we could prove it truly was a morel. <laughs> Same cameraman. You're going to see morel come up here, one there, and one starting back there. This one's falling over already after three days. This one lasted a little longer, that one was 28 days. Why these? Didn't go as long as that one. In fact, it grew out of the picture. They had to move the camera. But, but why those fell over and this one kept growing? I don't know. Okay, back to back to the history of the business. My first mushroom hunt was in the womb. And that was a long time ago. And fortunately, I, I married a woman I didn't know she liked morels, but she did, and so. It was something we did together. She babysat for three girls of a friend of ours one year while they went to the Thresherman's reunion in Iowa. And for, for babysitting, they brought her back a hiking stick with a morel on top. And she thought it was wonderful, and I, uh, I said thank you. And, and after they left, I told her, I said, you know, that's cute, but it wouldn't fool me in the woods. And she said, I suppose you can do better. That was a challenge. <laughs> so the first mushroom stick I ever made, I'm going to go grab it. <laughs> it's not sold. Nobody would buy it. This, this is the first one I made. I wasn't satisfied. So I tried to get it again. Pretty soon people said, oh, make one for me. So I did. So which one was the first? This one. Oh, OK. Yeah, here. Pass it around. People said, make one for me, so I started to. Then I figured, gee, I better start charging them. <laughs> and then we realized that there's a lot of wrong. And this is, you know, this is back in 92, before the internet. And there was even more misinformation then than there is now with the internet. We sought products to sell to mushroom hunters. We put out a catalog. And it's grown from there. And this stick is the one I made for Larry Lonnie. Again, he was six foot seven. And I think I made this one in 99. And I don't have any current ones because it's mushroom season is just over. I'm sold out. <laughs> in fact, I usually make these to order because I can't keep them in stock. You can pass that one around too if you want. It's heavy. That one's hickory. Ooh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, Larry handled it pretty well. Sorry about that. That's all right. It's indestructible. The, the business grew. At one point, we had five employees, and we sold to Gander Mountain and some other big stores. And the trouble is with the, with the big stores like that, they want you to finance them. And I'm too small of a company to finance them. So we parted ways with Gander Mountain. Uh, we still sell to Shields and some, some private uh, one-store only enterprises and then on the internet and then at the shows I do. I, uh, I exhibit and sell and do the seminars at the Deer Classics in the seven states. Um, I, do, I did four weekends in a row in April and May of mushroom festivals. And then we, uh, the first festival we went to was at 
Boyne City, Michigan in 93. And again, this all started in the fall of 92. And in May of 93, we went to Boyne City. And on the way, we saw signs on, at the motel, you know, the little, welcome mushroom hunters. You know, I, I'm thinking, wow, you wouldn't see that in Illinois. <laughs> so, so we attended the festival. And I actually had some of the products with me, and we sold out in a matter of two hours, so we knew that was a hit. So we kept going and, and had a lot of fun there. We found another festival in Indiana to go to. And then we had the idea, you know, Illinois needs something like this. And we thought, if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be us, you know. So we went to the town council in Magnolia, a little town of 200 people, and said we wanted to use their park for a gathering of mushroom hunters, take people mushroom hunting, and I know they thought I was just completely insane. <laughs> and, and, but that first year we had 750 people sign up. Uh, John Usar, who was the outdoor writer for the Chicago Tribune, he found out about it. He published on a Friday. That Friday, Vicki and I had gone snowmobiling up in Eagle River, Wisconsin, and we left our, uh, our uh, niece in charge of the kids and they finally called us in tears saying, the phone won't quit ringing, we quit answering it. <laughs> so we had 700, only 688 people showed up though, so the record was 2002. And then the last year we had it, it was declining in numbers. And I actually lost a couple thousand dollars in putting this on. We made the decision to talk to the people at Chamber of Commerce in Henry, which is nine miles away, and they tried it for three years, and they found out it really was a lot of work. And so they stopped, and so it didn't happen in 2010. And then in uh, 2011, or, or prior to 2011, the city of Ottawa phoned me, the Convention Visitors Bureau, and they said, we'd like to do this, but we don't know how. Will you help us? And I said, well, yeah, I guess we can. So it's, since 2011, it's been in Ottawa. And we are no, this was the first year we did not have the competition. And the reason is there's just not enough land that people are willing to let us take. We have two sites, and one of them won't let us take the competition to the site because people get out of bounds real easy and trespass. And so we're just doing the class now. And we get a lot more positive response from the class than we ever did the competition. I was thinking of that black cherry tree we talked about before. We walked up to it and we had two little guys with us. And, and I spotted some right away. And I said, all right guys, everybody just stay back. And I said, get on your hands and knees. And they started screaming, <laughs> you know, and that's what it's all about, so. Yes. Do deer or do deer eat these? Um, I don't think so, because if deer ate them, we wouldn't even know they existed <laughs> if they liked them. Now I have seen obvious deer teeth marks off the top of a morel, but they didn't finish it, so they must not have liked it. Now I know turkeys destroy them, scratching for bugs. I don't think the turkeys eat them either, but they're going for the bugs that may be in them. Yes. So people can just go and learn, like, you kind of take them around and show them how to find Yeah, yeah, we, we have about a 45-minute classroom discussion. Then we get on buses and we go to the site, and we have 
We try and have one guide for every 10 to 15 people. And this year we found a lot of morels, but they were all about this big. So they come next year, then do you just, I don't know, come April, just start looking up and signing up? Or is it a um, sign up? Or it's, uh, the website is, for it's the Ottawa Visitor Center. It's pickusottawail.com. And then go to their events page, you'll find it. Pickusottawail.com. So how much does the class cost? I think they were at 30 or 35. Well, it's not too bad. I'm just a teacher. They don't, they don't let me handle the money anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, however, walk-ons, I think they charge $50 because they have to have the buses in order to take the people out. Yes? What do you use the mushroom sticks for? Just for fun? Um, knock down spider webs is number one. Uh, knock away any brush that the morels might be growing under, like may apples, just sweep them aside. Um, if you're going down a hill that's kind of muddy, it might come in real handy. Or going up a hill. We had a, I think it was the second year we had the festival, uh, a lady slid down a 70-foot embankment. And she got muddy, but there were about 20 morels waiting for her, and she won second place. <laughs> So the, the terrain around where the mushrooms come up, you know, there's may apples, there's a lot of ferns, um, so do they come up under the ferns very often? I mean, like, if you see a large fern patch, would you bother? If there were a dead elm near it, yeah, I would. Okay, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah morels can come up under ferns. All right. And the number one rule is morels are where you find them. <laughs> but if you're going to find a mother load, there's going to be a dead elm within 20, 30 feet. Okay. Anyone else? Yes? So you mentioned cottonwoods. What about a poplar? Just regular? Tulip poplar. No, not tulip poplar. Just nah, that, other... not, not much on regular poplars. Okay. Just the tulip poplars. In, in Michigan, they call them popples. <laughs> they're in the same family, though. Oh, yeah. yeah. But for some reason, the association is with the tulip poplar. Yes. I've never, I've never tasted them around. Oh, I'm no. Saying, Don't yeah. start. <laughs> so you're saying, like, in Illinois, it's, it's illegal to sell them? Like, so where would you taste one? If you well, go to our event in Ottawa. You can buy them at the market because it's only a one-day event. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that, that, I mean, that's pretty much it. It's just like... There are private sellers. Yeah, there are private sellers all over the place. Well, we had one guy when we had the auction in Henry, and there weren't many buyers, and at the end of the event, he was buying everything for like 5 or $10 a half pound or a fourth pound, whatever they had him packaged in. And I saw him about three weeks later. I said, what did you do with all them mushrooms? He says, I parked in a jewel lot up in the uh, Chicago area and put a sign on for 80 bucks a pound, sold out in an hour. <laughs> the national average is 65 a pound. Yeah. Does the content or nutrient content of the trees have anything to do with where you're going to find them? I'm sure it does, but I don't know what it is. Yeah. There's got to be something that that mycelium likes about that location. Nutrient content. Nutrient content of the tree itself. Well, thank you, Tom, for coming today. Glad to be here. I do have mushroom hunting licenses on the back table. You need it in a state of confusion. It's our business card on the back.
And I also put out a, an email newsletter. I try and do it monthly. I've been kind of lackadaisical here for a while. Um, but just send me an email with the word subscribe in the title, and I'll add you to the list. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.